new on CuriosityStream. Have researchers figured out a mathematical formula for success? A clearer understanding of how success happens could lead us to change the rules. Gain a new perspective on getting ahead. It's science of success. And the U.S. won the space race, but not without help from the Nazis. They were just years ahead of us. Meet NASA's rocket scientists of the Third Reich on the moon landing and the Nazis. Watch now on CuriosityStream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. You don't want me to talk like you this for the voice. rest of the show? Tell. What do you mean? I... This is how I talk now. Yeah. Welcome, well, everybody, that... to the Canadian Real Estate Show. Hey. Welcome. What a rebrand. What a rebrand we did this week. The T-shirts we had, we had all those T-shirts about? on order that we had to that we had to change. We had all what those hats. Brand? What are you talking about? We had all those. We had all those uh, websites set up and and social social media accounts. A lot of work going on in the background here, eh? Yeah, the branding the eh? branding team did a really good job this week. Holy! Look at us. We are moving places. Look at the yeah. lovely, lovely Vancouver background. We don't. I don't really talk about Vancouver much. I like Vancouver, although I've never been there before. I really, I, I have no idea about Vancouver at all. This should be interesting. But I like it. I think, I think Vancouver is like, kind of like, I feel like Vancouver is a distant cousin who you don't get to see very often, but when you do, you respect them. You know? Well, I mean. You say we come from the same bloodline. They, they are our more fortunate side of the family. They have beautiful mountains. And, mm. and do they produce anything in Vancouver other than overheated real estate markets? I'm What's sure they've got a really good do? garment industry. <laughs> is it a garment industry? What yeah, is it? Got, Must be retail got, out there. A lot they got of retail. Some good, they got some good, you know, some good jackets there. out there, right? They're going to have good ski jackets. Just tourism and real estate? Like, what's going on in Vancouver? What do they do? Honestly, what's going on I'm in asking. Toronto? Yeah. Well, we do have the uh, financial sector firmly sure. entrenched here okay. and a fairly decent tech sector. Okay. And what? You don't um, think Vancouver has the same thing? I don't know what the hell's. I've never been there. They must I have the nothing. same thing. Look at the this city. Be, Look at my background. Look at those this, mountains. This Would that inspire you to trade stocks? A wonderful learning journey. Yeah. We're going to go down a We're beautiful. Gonna find Someone from Vancouver. I hope so. I hope so. I think we may have had people on in the past for Vancouver and not even known really? it. Oh my God. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I, I, I hope that this is the right move for us, TK. Yeah, I think it is. Now, just so everybody knows, because I know there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say, wait a second, guys, I tuned in because I'm from Toronto and I want to know all about mm. the Toronto real estate show and, and the Toronto real estate market. Let's just, let's just be honest here. Daryl and I don't know anything else other than the Toronto real estate market. So we're not going to be talking about all sorts of other places as if we know what we're talking about. We may bring on some special guests who do. We will bring on special guests that do. Most importantly, though, we're going to talk about real estate in general and things that are affecting all Canadians, whether they're in Toronto or they're in Barrie or they're in Hamilton 
or they're across the coast to coast from, uh, what was that song again? This land is your land from Bonavista to Vancouver Island, you know? Where's Bonavista? It's probably somewhere really far on the East Coast because it's is that really the right Vancouver words? Island. Okay, so but here, this is what we're saying, okay? So everybody, just so we're yeah. all clear, we are explaining to you right now that we have no idea about anything to do with the Canadian real estate market. But here we are now considered the Canadian real estate show. Yeah. Is and Canada gonna... north of Steeles? Um, I don't I'm know. Not sure what's north of Steeles. There's a guy. Do you, know, do you know Bob from Canada? Does he have the wife, uh, Susan? He he, ha he he has the hat. The hat. <laughs> He's wearing the hat. You know, Bob. Yeah, I think I know Bob. Yeah, I know I, I know Bob. I know Bob. Anyways, does he today's, live, does he today's... live north of Steels? <laughs> Who the hell can afford to live north of Steels? Like the Not average, the average price is four million dollars now. Yeah, it's crazy. You have to this be week like... is crazy. We went live this week. We went live from that multiple offer, that scenario yeah. that I had. And the people great. who bought were from Chicago. What? Yeah. So it was a few offers. It was like 300,000 over asking. And uh, the people who bought were from Chicago. And they are relocating. Really? For a job. Yeah. And they wow. were keen on the house. And they went after it because they said, I got to have it. This and is, they got it. This is like something unheard of. Like, we have not talked about somebody immigrating from anywhere but like the Far East into Canada forever yeah, for a job. I, did, I didn't even consider someone from the States moving here. How many, how many of them do this? It happens. There's lots of Americans here. Lots of Americans here. Yeah. Well, speaking of somebody from, this is great. He's Ukrainian. What a perfect time to have a Ukrainian real estate specialist on the show. I love it. I'm excited to welcome the first Canadian real estate show guest of all time. If you do not include TK or myself, whichever one is the host and the guest. Look at that guy. Nice and relaxed. It's Sunday morning. Good morning. That, you see, that's a good sounding mic. That doesn't sound like your fucking ear pods, I'm telling you. And I'm pretty sure mine sounds better than your ear pods, Mr. Good morning. All right. Morning. That's the secret. Jordan, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? I'm good. I'm good. good. I'm just relaxing. We've got a we've got a new name for the show. We're reaching coast to coast. We're not just all about Toronto, even and even though the that's Canadian, really all we know about. I see it. You guys have updated the, the studio. We have Canadian moved into a new studio. We are hovering high above Canada now. Nice. It looks uh looks looks sharp. I like it. Yeah. Thank you. We've got the weight of weight of the country on our backs. And who better to be the first guest of all time than Mr. Jordan Skrinko from Yes, a guy, a guy who exclusively knows about the Toronto real estate market and not the broader market. We were just telling everybody perfect. that we don't know anything about Canada either. So it's perfect. You are the well, perfect let's, first let's, guest. Let's jump right into then the first conversation because I agree, Jordan. You're you're a Toronto expert, right? What do you think about all the Toronto agents? selling pre-construction in Alberta right now? 
I think it's I think it's a natural pivot to where they think value is. You can still cash flow positive. The end price is very low. So I know in in the past, if we've sent out Hamilton options to our list or Barry options to our list, it's very easy to get a lot of worksheets very quickly because so many Toronto investors are just go, looking at the end that the gross price and saying you know, clicking buy, right? Because it's, it's very easy to swallow the pill of a four hundred thousand dollar condo, much easier than an eight hundred thousand dollar one bedroom. Yeah. Um, are and, they really cash flowing? Like what kind of cash flow are we talking about on, per month? Uh, it depends on the project, but a lot of them are cash flowing or even offering cash flow positive guarantees um, and rental management and all that good stuff because they know a bulk of their purchasers are Toronto investors uh, pivoting to where they think that, you know, there's still some value to be had. Um, and obviously like I mean, a lot of these days, you're buying a pre-construction, a one bedroom downtown at 16, 1700 a foot. Um Assuming three or four percent rental inflation between now and let's say your completions twenty twenty five or twenty twenty six, that thing's going to negative cash flow five hundred to a thousand bucks a month at three percent mortgage rate, right? So there's, there's not everybody is willing to take a, a five hundred dollar a month negative negative yield on their investments, and so Calgary offers a way kind of out of that. Um, what yeah, what, are the, what price are they at per square foot out in Calgary? Do you know? Depends depends on the project. Six, seven, eight hundred bucks a foot. Six, but seven, eight hundred bucks a foot. That's crazy. How do they build cheaper in Calgary? Uh, my understanding is yes, and oh. also, I know like one project by Greywood out there that we were promoting. Um, no development levies. Like your your closing costs are essentially nil. Uh, mm. Which in Toronto, obviously, you're talking about five, six percent closing costs. Um, so it's a totally different market. I'd like to welcome the expert on Calgary real estate to the show, Jordan Skrinko. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. So one of the one of the discussions we had last week, Jordan, was with um, a guest who's from Alberta. And so apparently the Alberta Real Estate Association is cracking down on Ontario agents who are not licensed in Alberta because obviously, you know, promoting a project out there and not being licensed is, uh, you know, unregulated, right? So how do you... Like I said, Toronto real estate expert, I get it. I've, I've been all over Ontario sometimes, right? And it's kind of like, how do you ensure that you're giving your clients the best advice in Calgary, right? When you're in Toronto and that you're- Are you pushing anything in Calgary? Not currently. I mean, we've sold a ton in Montreal um, over the past couple of years, uh, mm -hmm. but not a ton in Calgary, no. So how do you, how do you in, in Montreal, like how do you, what's your steps to make sure that your clients are getting the best? Because they get great advice from you here in Toronto right? You know, it like the back of your hand. How do you go about it in Montreal? Well, so personally, we hired referral partners out in, out in Montreal that know the market better, better than me. Um, now, obviously, all the statistics, all of the, basically everything I do for, you know, my, my videos on YouTube and in why invest in Toronto and stuff, I can do all that stuff remotely for Montreal as well, because that's all publicly available information. Uh, but when it comes to neighborhood specifics and sort of the finer details, it's worth having, I think, having somebody local who knows the local market better, who's been working there for a long period of time. Um, I mean, pre-construction is an interesting one because it's kind of the wild west, right? Like pre like they'll pay um, commissions to Toronto agents, no problem. Uh, mm -hmm. It's relatively unregulated, at least now it is. Um, so, I mean, I think you should have someone local, especially if somebody wants to do in-person appointments, right? Because how, how can you do that uh, virtually? Virtual you can do it virtually, reality. But, 
Yeah. But if somebody yeah. wants to go see resale properties, resale comps in the neighborhood of a pre-construction yeah. that they're buying, like you can obviously you need somebody on the ground. So I've always been a proponent of having people on the ground. I think real estate is intrinsically, like over the last two years, most of our sales have been virtual, but I think intrinsically, people still want to see and touch. That's the beauty of a real asset, right? And so it's been interesting for the last two years. I don't know going forward as as more sales centers are open to the public and stuff that that is going to continue to work as well, but we'll see. And do you think that that, do you guys think that that's going to be a maybe a growing trend for some of these bigger teams out there now that need to figure out a way to get more market share with so many agents out there that more and more people will kind of latch on to people in other cities to, to, you know, maybe get a little bit more income going. Uh, Probably something we'll see. I mean, I'm, I've been this year because of just urban exodus and people moving all over the place. I've been referring out like crazy. I'm a big believer in referring. Like if someone's buying in London, I'm not handling that lead. Like I'm sending it to somebody who specializes in London. Um, just the other day, I sent somebody, I sent one of my clients uh, over to uh, Soretsky because uh, I don't know Vancouver. I don't know what's a good neighborhood, what's a bad neighborhood, right? All I know is that I love skiing out there. So I just give it, you know what I mean? Like I just hand the lead over to someone else um, and and it's taken care of better than I could have. And what about like, do you notice more people coming into your pre-construction space than, than ever before? Yes. A hundred percent. You have so many agents who are just desperate to sell whatever they can get their paws on. And so, you know, with inventory so shallow in the resale market, everybody is suddenly a pre-construction expert, which is inevitable. I mean, over the past five years, it's been just a slowly increase, uh, a slow increase in the amount of people specializing in pre-construction, but you find a lot of them drop off a year or two in when they're faced with the cash flow realities of this business and the difficulty in securing allocations. If you're not, that's what I was going to say. Connected. How, how do yeah. you, how do all these new people even get something to sell in pre-construction? I think a lot of the time they're at brokerages where there are other big platinums who have been solidified in their role in the industry. Um, and they'll just, take unit allocations from them, pay one or 2% to the person securing the unit and their clients will sign that deal under the platinum's name. The issue with that is then they're not building their own name. So they're never going to get the level of access, but it works. It's a, it's a way to, you know, it's a way to um, at least secure units for your clients. So you don't leave them empty handed. Yeah. It's a value that you add, right? It's like, maybe I don't have the contacts, but I know the guy who does. Right. Yeah, exactly. And now these guys have like, don't these guys have crazy lists of contacts? Like, isn't that why they're the top dogs in platinum? Well, you'll find there are a fair amount of people in platinum who uh, pretty much exist these days off of co-oping their units out. I was There's, just about to say that. That's yeah. exactly what I would guess to be the successful model of a platinum agent is not knowing buyers, knowing a yeah, lot of well, agents. Like once you've built your name and once you're in a position where you're trusted in a, and every builder knows you and they're, and they're giving you allocations, I'm sure it's very easy to retire to Tulum and never sell another unit yourself again. Um, yeah. I'm not saying a lot of them do that, but I, I know there are definitely guys who do. Yeah. From my perspective in the industry, there seems to already be redundancies in the system, layers that don't need to be there. And it sounds like we've just added another one that really doesn't need to be there. Just, just because of the sheer volume of participants in the market right now, and, and not buyers. I mean, 71,000 and counting with like full classrooms, uh, you know, every day, paying yeah. fees and fees for tests and courses. Like how, how, how this, this doesn't sound like it's a 
good system at all right now. No, it's, I mean, it's incredibly competitive. I think the reality is like realtors entering this space need to be, uh, need to be understanding that they're not actually competing with 70,000 people. They're competing with 10,000, 5,000, right? 90% of business goes to 10% of the agents or even worse. Um, and so uh, they just need to do something to set themselves apart, to provide value that others aren't providing, which in our space is actually easier than you would think. Um, I, I often turn to the U.S. markets to see what they're doing that we aren't, because I find when it comes to marketing and funnels and and education to uh, towards clients, like they they always seem to be two or three years ahead of us. Um, their follow up with people, their customer service, like everything, just seems better down there. Um, I was even tweeting about it the yeah, other day. Yeah, you were. Like, I saw that. Yeah, I find uh, you know if I sign up to ten real estate landing pages in the states, five of them call me within like ten minutes. Um, the other five get back to me in a couple of hours in Canada, you sign up to 10 landing pages and five won't call you ever. Right. And the rest might get to you within 24 hours. So it is interesting to me that just like they're more, way more dialed in down there. And I found that across a multitude of industries, like software as a service is the same. You sign up to a software as a service company, like some sort of something that offer that maybe is in the 500 to $1,500 a month mark. And if it's a Canadian provider, like the customer service and the follow-up is far inferior to what you'll get from the States. Inferior. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And these guys are doing volume. These guys down in the States are like thousands of deals on their teams. Thousands. Like they're just really, really honed in on the business model of, uh, of, of real estate, right? Where, I think in Canada, it's always just been like a really good job and that people have tried to implement these business, you know, structures, kind of like how to uh, set up the framework so that you can, you can scale. And uh, they just have it figured out way better in the States than they always have. And nobody's catching up in Canada. I know all the big teams in Canada and what they're doing, and they're still not even close to what some of the guys in the States are doing. Yeah, I agree. I feel like I get bombarded daily by you know, people that I've signed up for their email lists, I get texts all the time and, oh, hey, by the way, there's one more unit here. I don't know what percentage of the people that I contacted originally are in contact with me, though. I never even, I just sign up for everything to see what's going on out there. Speaking of what's going on out there, did you see that new launch in Kitchener? This tech yes. thing? What the yeah. fuck's <clears throat> going on? It's over a thousand bucks a foot in Kitchener. For like a yeah. high rise building in Kitchener, who wants to live in that? Uh, I mean, I, I think I think the attraction to it is the the tenant pool, right? You have both students and tech workers, um, given the name tech. Uh, but twelve hundred a foot. I mean, I, I'm actually not that surprised when when you're seeing Barry condos at eleven hundred, and you're seeing, uh, you know, Georgetown at eleven fifty a foot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like I, I, I can understand why they would launch at twelve hundred, especially with lots of small units. The gross price comes in pretty low, so it's still attractive, an attractive offering to an entry level investor, at least. Any idea how it did? Did it start yet? What I don't know. We we didn't really promote it. We we only promote maybe 10, 12 launches a year. Um, if you you're probably on my email list too. I am. I, I, I am. send I send one or two emails a month. Like I know. Yeah, a lot you're of not bad. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of the other, like my colleagues and, and friends in the space will send like three, four, five a week. Oh my God, um, you have no idea some of these guys. I, the tech the tech one, I was getting the same email from the, the same people like over and over again this week. It was crazy. I must yeah. have got 18 different got emails. Email. Yeah. Jordan, what's the thought process on only 10 to 12 projects a year? Is that like, what about, like right now I know there's not as many launches, but let's say there was like an infinite amount of launches. Would you still be trying to select like 
the best launches in order to be able to promote those? Yeah. Is that what it's based off of? Yeah, I, I de- definitely. Part of it is the relationships we've built. Um, we, we don't do like one or two deals at every launch. Uh, we tend to pick launches very carefully and do 10, 20, 30 deals at each individual project. Uh, we like yeah. to know our product. So I like to, I like to have my whole team in a place where they've seen every page of the architectural drawings and they know everything about the building to the point where often they know more than the inside sales reps. That's the type of product knowledge I strive for my team to have. And you can't do that when you're selling a hundred, you know, 50 launches a year. It's just not, it's not feasible. Um, Is it necessary these days? It's not, it, it definitely isn't like these days. It's if, if I, if we wanted to double our volume overnight, we probably could by just sending more emails with a very simple template. Like here's the project, here are the details, here's the price list. Here's how you get in touch with us to do a worksheet. Um, I just don't, I've never really like, yeah, I've never really liked selling that way. Um, but the truth is like clients come to me all the time and they'll be like, Hey, I know you're not working on this X condos launch, but we really want a unit here and we'd like you to represent us. Can you get us a unit? And it's like, of course I, I will either I'll, I'll submit the worksheet through me or I'll refer you to somebody who I know is closer with the builder and you can just go through them. Um, right. so it's not like I don't facilitate transactions on, on launches we aren't promoting. It's just that we're very careful about what we put our time into. Right. Think about it too, from the consumer standpoint, it's like, here you go. Jordan's promoting another project again. Like if I got the same template for a hundred yeah. different projects all year, I don't know which one's good or not, you know? And I, well, I feel like if you are promoting this one project and it's been a month or whatever, since the last one, and I knew all these other projects were happening, I would be like, wow, if Jordan says, this is the one, like this must be a, a good project. He's researched it. He's done his due diligence. His reputation speaks for itself. That's something that I should look into. Right. So there's a little bit more prestige. Well, if everything is the best investment ever, then yeah. nothing is right. And, yeah, and I think yeah, yeah. a lot of the times I see the email copy and it's, and it's, it's kind of funny. It's like a lot of the time the email copy is very similar to the last project. Um, yeah. And, and, very and, similar. It's identical. the exact same thing with different <laughs> pictures. <laughs> yeah. You're lucky if they changed all the words to the right project. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and to credit, credit to my colleagues, like when you're in this much of a seller's market, like a lot of people aren't focused on the minute detail of the projects, right? They just don't care. They just get want to get something. something. Yeah. Get me yeah. something. So hold on exactly. a second. So one of you just said that there isn't very many launches, but I, I do remember you tweeting something about 20 launches coming up this month. Yeah. There's like 20 over the is next there, Is there really 20? Yeah, all over the GTA though, not specific to Toronto. It's just uh, launch after launch after launch. Like actual really. GTA? Or are we talking like Barry and uh, including yeah Brampton, Mississauga, and yeah. everything? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, there's, but, there's a ton. So that's a lot. That sounds like what a about lot to me. what about downtown? Any launches coming downtown? Yeah, there definitely are. I mean, you have Celeste coming. You have um, uh, sixty Queen East coming from Tridel. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you have a few coming downtown as well. It's Do you already have yours selected bonkers. that you know which ones are going to be promoted? Sort of. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, the other, the other difficulty is it's one, we, we try to do our due diligence ahead of time, look at architectural plans, that kind of thing and decide what we like and what we don't like. But of course, until, until we see finalized pricing, it's one thing when a developer tells us ahead of time, this can be 1100 a foot. It's like, well, I've been told that before and launch mm-hmm. and seen launch at 13. So it, it's, it's tough to pick um, really far in advance because I, I really need to see what those finalized prices look like because that really does change the value. I know a lot of people just promote location, 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 but the price, the price matters. Mm-hmm. To who? To me. Why? Because it doesn't seem to matter to anybody else right now. 
Well, I think if you're in a if you're in a neighborhood where resale is trading eleven hundred a foot and you're charging um, fifteen hundred a foot, like buyers need to be cognizant of the fact that they're pricing in future vows of four hundred a foot or more before they break even on a project. Um, but if something's a narrower gap. If something's launching at 1150 or 1100 a foot when the resale market's a uh, thousand a foot like that, I can justify a lot easier to my investors. So um, maybe I'm leaving, maybe I'm naive and I'm leaving a lot of money on the table by not promoting these other projects. And I probably am. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I, yeah, I want my investors to do better than the market. And the only way to, for them to do better than sort of the median pre-construction buyer is by focusing on the projects that I think are relatively good value. Is there any new projects that actually are cash flow positive without 50% down? Rental. Yeah. I mean, what Westerly was, right? That was in Etobicoke, that one? Yeah, yeah. Islington and Bloor. Tried out. When they was that? Uh, November. November of last year. And they launched at 10.50 a foot. And so what do you make a month? Like $8? Yeah, precisely. <laughs> I'm not even joking. What do you make? 50 bucks, 100 bucks if you're lucky? Ex no, exactly. Yeah, really, exactly that. It's neutral or a little bit positive Eight at bucks. three three percent rental inflation. Three percent rental inflation is pretty conservative considering rental rates are still depressed right now and have a ways to gap up. Um, but like, I'm not changing my pro forma standards and assumptions just because the market has has shifted. I think that's sort of a short term outlook. So, to me, it's like if the cash flow is neutral at three percent rental inflation, like that's a really good project. Mm. Wow. And so borders for sure. Yeah. How, how does that compare to like 10 years ago? Well, I mean, so this is, a, this is actually an interesting discussion to me. I, I find it interesting that like, you know, two, three, four years ago when cash flow positive at 20% down stopped being possible in Toronto in the resale market, everyone said investing is dead. Um, and that's when the rental guarantees started, by the way. Yeah. No. And I think that's interesting because like, we're not, we have decent rental yield versus Hong Kong versus Manhattan versus these other places, San Francisco, like we have good, good rental yield compared to those other places. Um, and we have really high home, home ownership rate. So I don't know why we're this anomalous market where cash flow negative yield at 20% at down just kills the idea of investing in the city. Um, I, like, I don't understand why everyone has that assumption because it hasn't helped. It doesn't hold true in these other cities. It didn't when they transitioned from being a cash flow positive investment versus cash flow negative at 20% down. Right. Um, it's not as though people don't still invest in New York and they don't still invest in San Francisco. Of course they do. And yeah. those are way worse in terms of rental yield than we are. So to me, it's, it's interesting that uh, like, people just seem unable to look at other cities around the world and go, well, they didn't stop appreciating just because they stopped cash flowing. Right. And you look at our homeowner ownership rate at, you know, what is it? 62, 63%. You say that has a lot of room to fall. Um, is that what it's like. at now? Yeah. That must be provincial. No. Yeah. Provincial. Yeah. But like, I, uh, I look at that number and it's like that, that that's really high. Right. That like, I don't like the idea that it's going to get less and less affordable for end users. And, but, but that's just how, that's just how, like, we're a very young housing um, market. As, as we age and become more of a noteworthy, like, world class city, like, it's the homeownership rate will plummet. It's happened in all these other cities. Why wouldn't it happen here? It has to happen. It's the affordability issue. Yeah. It has nothing to do with choice. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. so, so now I, I believe in those other markets, you'll see, uh, 
like more full cash buyers. People are not like leveraging 100% uh, or, or 80%, 70%. People are coming in with like cash, buying a, a an apartment or a building in New York. They're not like, you know, they're not trying to squeeze out $100 a month of cash flow if they're buying in New York, right? Like they're buying like a piece of New York cash, most of them. I think, aren't they? It's, a, it's, a, it's an inflation. I think to a lot of buyers in those markets, it's an, it's an inflation hedge and and sort of a uh, a safe value asset that they know right. like it might not do. It might not be their best performing part of their portfolio, but it's not like losing. gold. It's yeah. like gold in the sense that it, yeah, they're not going to lose over a long period of time. So, do we see that happening more here in Toronto? Are people putting more money down on deals, or are you still seeing everybody stretching it as far as they can? I think it's 50-50. I have a lot of clients who are who are levering HELOCs and that type of thing to to buy. I think that's a huge portion of the market, specifically the mom and pop investors or the people buying for their kids just so their kids can afford a home. Um, but also I have I have a lot of I have a lot of clients that are all cash or or 50% down, that type of thing. Um you know, like over the last two years, we've gotten way more requests for people to ensure during their lawyer review, during their 10 day cooling period, that the builder is going to allow them to pay the balance on interim occupancy. So they don't have to pay, you know, the interest only payment. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's 50, 50, I think you still have a ton of people levering up in Toronto though. Yeah. I think the majority are, and I think it's the same thing in New York too. I, I know that we kind of have this image of everybody there must have a lot of money. But I think it would be a similar percentages there as it would be here. People for investors, for investors, yeah, I think yeah. so too. Yeah, yeah. The um, you know, I guess real estate agents get a bad name, right? Like people say, like you know, I wanted to buy the property cash, but then my agent told me, well, why don't I buy three properties with you know that amount of money and you know put you know a certain amount down on each one, and uh, it's just not for everybody. I think that everyone's kind of got their own profile their own investor investment profile and how they want to, you know, sleep well at night, knowing what it is that they own. And there's some people who can be leveraged up to their eyeballs and they sleep very well, knowing that everything is, you know, in place and that they're, they're earning more uh, appreciation and, and, and building up equity a lot faster. And then there's other people too, who won't buy until they have every single dollar to pay down or like they, like I have clients when they buy investment properties and then like two, three years later, and like, they're putting like that, I don't know what they're putting on 20, 30, 40%, but a significant um, amount of uh, loan to value still. And then a couple of years later, they're like, yeah, we paid that off. And I'm just like, how, <laughs> like, you know, like yeah. you're making like five grand a month or whatever it was, but they just work their tails off to make sure that they paid off that three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollar mortgage, whatever it was. Um, and it's like, I'm always impressed by those type of people. I think everyone's just built different, right? For sure. Everyone has different risk tolerances and depending on ethnicity, where they're from too, some people are terrified of holding uh, mortgage debt. Right. And yep. so they, they strive to pay it off as quickly as possible. Uh, a lot of people live through the nineties. Like, uh, so there's a different, you know, there's different viewpoints for a lot of people. And I have, I, like you said, I have just as many clients who are levered to the, I have clients who are, uh, so levered that like, it even scares me. Um, yeah. <laughs> but that's not the bulk of my clients for sure. Yeah. So, so now we have a lot of people talking about the market is turning right now, right? It's, it's, it's shifting it yes. is, is the term that we're hearing thrown around a lot, dun, dun, at least in our, in, in our little Twitter bubble. Q, Q sound guy. Right. Um, yeah. so, so from your perspective, you know, what's going on? I know last time I said, people are saying it's slowing down. And TK said from his perspective, it, like that was completely incorrect. I know I see a lot of counter tweets out there when people say, 
you know, there's no more uh, bidding wars going on. And then people will say, well, I, I was just in a couple that had 10 on each. What, where does it, what does it look like from your perspective? I think the story of the last two years still holds true right now and that the market is incredibly fragmented. Um, mm. You know, I've got, I've got examples of resale condos at Victoria Park and Shepherd uh, selling for, um, you know, uh, 1400 a foot resale. What? And then you're seeing, yeah. Yeah. And then you're, <laughs> what? Yeah. And then you're seeing, um, how you big, know, uh, f- 507 square. Um, and then you're seeing listings like on Richmond in the entertainment district in good buildings sell for what they're asking for at like under 1200 a foot with parking included the same size. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, I, I get it. It's an end user, obviously buying the Victoria park condo saying this is near my work or near my parents or whatever, this is where I have to be. But as an investor, if you were to look at that and buy the Victoria park at 1400 versus, um, the entertainment district at 1200, that doesn't make any sense. Of course, like unless you, unless your personal view is that, um, uh, the location premium is never returning and people would rather live at Victoria park than at in the entertainment district in downtown Toronto. Um, so I think it, the market is very fragmented. Like we see definitely freehold inventory is ticking up in the suburbs um, as is condo inventory downtown, but we're still well below two months of inventory. So we're still in this strong seller's market. It's just that when you're talking about sub one month of inventory, minor changes can feel a lot bigger than they are right? Like if inventory doubles, it's still record low inventory, but the buyer sentiment is going to change very rapidly because it looks so different versus just recency bias, like versus a month ago, all of a sudden everything looks very, very different. I wouldn't be like, I've given up on predictions because the last two years has been nuts, but I wouldn't be surprised to see us trade sideways for a few months here until things start taking off again. Um, And specifically, I would think like downtown condos, just because they have the most room to run just relative value wise and location premium wise. I think those, I think we might see inventory pick, pick up over the spring market with opportunistic sellers. And then um, I wouldn't be surprised to see a return to insanity in, in the fall. So that's like after two rate hikes, you're, you're saying it's going to take off then. So you're, you're, you're saying for these next two rate hikes that we assume there's a second one coming next month, right? Mm -hmm. We're all under the same assumption there. I I think so. Yeah. So assuming they do two rate hikes. So what do you think is going to happen now? It's going to be flat with these hikes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the frothier markets might actually correct downwards, see some price discovery in the, in the opposite direction, because Hey, areas like Oshawa and Durham are up what like 95% in two years. Whereas mm-hmm. like CO1 condos downtown is the most connected city and you know, the financial hub of our country are only up 12% in two years. It's like yeah. I would I would not want to like if anything's gonna see um some some correction, it's gonna be those super frothy markets, you know, those mm-hmm. berry townhomes selling for a million bucks. Like that's an issue. <laughs> you know, like that's you have to have a $200,000 household income to afford a Barry townhome these days. That's nuts. Um, well, or you need to have some cash parents, give you some money and eight co-signers. Right. And Which is apparently a formula, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a realtor who's willing to like, uh, hold off on his commission for two more months. A, re- a realtor who lives in Etobicoke, who's driving you to Barry to make VTB. that one deal to pay one point something million dollars for a townhouse. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, it's, it's scary. Yeah, it's it's scary. Like some of the prices that that I'm seeing out there, and 
I agree with Jordan. The stuff that's further outside of the core is always going to be, uh, you know, exposed to the highest amount of risk, you know, like that location premium downtown, it never goes away. It shifts. It, it did. It, it did know, during COVID. It, it went away. It's, it, it, it offers more opportunity sometimes than, than others. But at the end of the day, like there's a reason that that location premium is there. And that when people come to Toronto, I always say this to people, if I move to Chicago, I would not be moving to some suburb I've never heard of. I would move to the core in the city in the areas that are like most common touristy, you know, high density, that kind of stuff. And then after a few years, I'd decide where I want to go and where and, and what life I want to live in that uh, in that metropolis. But, um, you know, people will always be attracted to the core of Toronto. It just doesn't it just doesn't make any sense for it to be any other way. You know, no, and I, and sure. I think like if you look at um, like how bad commuting was pre COVID, how bad is it going to be now? that so many people have moved outside of the core. I mean, we were already pre-COVID, we were the second worst average commute time in North America. Only, mm-hmm. well, the only worst city to commute in was uh, LA, right? So like, it's it's interesting to me that, um, uh, yeah, I just I just think like point. the fact that, you know, homes in, uh, in Waterdown are selling for the same price as homes in Alderwood just makes no sense to me. Um, and I think over time, location premium will we'll see some mean reversion in the market. May not, maybe not all the way back to the ratios we were looking at previous, but definitely meet in the middle somewhere. So, so okay. So we just came out of the pandemic, hopefully. At least it feels like it right now, and that's what they're saying. So we had a huge effect from that on the real estate market. But we go, you know, straight from the fire into the frying pan with potentially World War Three breaking out. Um, I think I remember you saying in a tweet that you're Ukrainian. So yeah. I'm sure you have a really interesting perspective on what's going on over there. So, I mean, let's let's discuss this a little bit. What's going on over there has got to have ramifications over here, doesn't it? I mean, it you were on to. our episode about Evergrande or Evergrande, whatever the hell we're calling it today. Right. Uh, that was so long ago. And I don't know if we've felt that here yet, but I mean, it's 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 all coming, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting and and just like the essential death of the 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 Russian uh, economy and markets is 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 definitely interesting. Um I mean it it's tough like to have any uh, to have any like clear view on what's actually happening over there is tough right now because it's uh, uh, the reporting on both sides is all propaganda and it's incredibly hard through the fog of war to understand what the hell is happening. Um, I do. I mean, obviously, Canada has the third highest uh, population of Ukrainians outside of Ukraine and Russia. Um, really? And I think, yeah, and I think we'll be something like a 1.5 million uh, Ukrainian population in Canada, which is huge considering our, 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 wow. yeah, our overall yeah. population. That's how many Ukrainians apparently just uh, like left Ukraine to other like escape to other countries in the last few days, like 1.5 million people. Yeah. I mean, half my half my real estate team is Ukrainian. I don't know how that happened, but it, really? it just sort of did. Um, it happens. We'll have to talk to human resources, right? You got to make sure you're, you're balancing things. <laughs> yeah, out I'm not hitting my yeah, I'm not in, hitting my quota for yeah. a trial. A trial one day. Um, yeah, <laughs> and then and now now it was 6,100 uh, uh, Ukrainians have already come as of January, and then now they're saying basically we'll accept an unlimited amount of people coming here, whether or not they want to stay. Right. But at least, you know, temporarily, that's going to require some housing just on just basically on, you know, population growth alone. That's that's going to be um, put some pressure on on housing. What about mm-hmm. economic stuff? What do you think about the economic stuff that's going to happen from the war? I have no idea. 
Um, I'm, I, I don't claim to be an expert on, on that at all. Uh, I have, I have genuinely no idea what the implications of this are. Um, like even with Evergrande, I was like 50, 50, like it could cause a worldwide catastrophe or it could just cause flight to value. And, 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 and that's good bullish. Right. So it's, it's really difficult to, to look at this and say how it'll unfold. It's so um, crazy. There's so many gas catalysts. Gas, like Gas is up. Oil prices are higher. You know, there's definitely things that are being felt immediately. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Gas prices, obviously. Wheat. wheat yeah. Wheat. Up. Holy yeah. shit. Wheat, oil, natural gas and everything that those things go into which is basically everything yeah right? i mean in the middle the middle class just doesn't seem to catch a break in the last three years like they're just getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed homeownership is out of reach the cost of basic necessities in, increasing commuting is becoming impossible with gas prices like it's getting very difficult to be middle class in canada how do you make a budget right now so people you know most responsible adults have some form of a budget, whether it's loose or super detailed. Everybody's got a line item for food on there, right? And a line item for shelter and a line item for gas. Like the budgets are getting squeezed. These people that are now going to need another, uh, you know, half a percent on their mortgage or whatever that translates into, into a mortgage is on top of, food, which I don't know, I haven't redone my budget because I'm afraid, like how much did the food line just go up? It didn't go up 5.1%. It didn't go up 10%, right? Like, so oh, food yeah. line went up bananas, gasoline. I don't even drive that much. And lately I feel like I'm at the goddamn gas station every day. Yeah. I, I don't know what's going on. I mean, it's opening up. People are going out more. So that means people are using more of this expensive gas Heating the house is getting more expensive. Like, what line on the budget has to go down now? What line item is there in the budget that can go down these days? It's a it's a really good question. I mean, wage growth is so important right now. Um, and that's going when we're, flat, we're not right? seeing it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's it's really tough. Like, I have a lot of sympathy. Um, I think it, I think it's an incredible tough position to be in. You follow a couple of like debt consolidation guys on Twitter, and you'll see like people are hurting out there, right? And we haven't seen the full brunt of the effects. Like, um, I don't. And this isn't a crazy good market. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I like I don't claim to be like um, struggling to get by or anything, uh, but like we, even me, like I'm looking at at what I'm spending on things, and it's like Jesus Christ. Like I've never. Like I've never spent that for a day of groceries or a couple of days of groceries. Like I, like, you know, it's, it's tough out there for, for the middle class and without wage growth, I think, I think we are going to see some, some serious issues. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough to say. Uh, I think that's part of the reason you're seeing so many people rotate into real estate investment in general too, is just because like the, the, the financial instruments or the means of upward mobility in Canada are, are relatively limited. Like, we don't have the same earning potential as the U.S. does. And so, I mean, when you look at the composition of the average um, net worth statement in Canada that from the census of 2016, it was like, you know, 60, 70 percent of, of net worth was tied up in real estate. So everyone's nest egg is their primary or their primary plus any investment properties they own. Um, and uh, versus the states, right? 60, 70 percent is tied up in stocks. So it's a, it's an it's kind of interesting that Canadians are so hell bent on, on owning the real estate that they that they live in, whereas obviously there's a much larger renter class in the states. Um, so I'm not sure. It's really tough to say how it all 
how it all folds uh, unfolds. Like I I've never been in a position where I'm looking at the market and I'm, I'm really not sure which way it's going to head, but that's the position I'm in today. Like I over, over the medium to long-term, I get it. Like the fundamentals make a lot of sense. We just, we keep increasing our immigration targets and we cannot build more homes. So fundamentally it makes sense that the prices go up, but also we're, re- we're they're going up quite quickly. So we're reaching this place of at a certain point, the average person just can't, well, we're already at the point where an average person can't afford a home. Um, but we're getting very quickly to that like critical point where the t- upper 20, 30% of the population also can't afford a home. And that's when things I think get really hairy. Mm-hmm. And we were talking before the pandemic about people's um, end of the month, uh, you know, excess cash and stuff like that. And it was low, you know, it was like $200 a month people had at the end of the month. And if there was any emergency that happened, that was more than $200. They're basically like, they're done. They're using credit and, and they're, and they're, and they're out, uh, out of luck. So it's like, isn't that worse now? Like, isn't like, where is everybody's financial situation at? Like, did everyone just refinance their house? Like that's not possible, right? Like where no, is, I don't where think is everyone so. at? There's the numbers don't struggling. say that either. The chart, I mean, the chart. Um, what was it? The um, excess savings rate chart stratified by uh, in household income, and what we found was that in the last or during COVID, at least, like the bottom fifty um, percent of of the population are are looking at a net loss every month, whereas the upper twenty percent are saving more cash than they ever have before. Um, Cause they weren't obviously losing their jobs and they um, obviously weren't going out or going on their yearly vacations or whatever the case is. Right. Um, getting that's dropped a lot now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. That, that's but, come down quite a bit. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I don't know how it's all going to, going to play out. I mean, I think like short term, it's really difficult to predict anything with uh, it seems like every six months we have a new worldwide crisis. Um, so it's really hard to say how it all plays out, uh, but medium to long term, it's like, the immigration targets that we know we're going to hit plus the underbuilding of supply. Like I'm, I'm bullish over medium to long-term, but short-term who knows, there might be some, some really good opportunities for people sitting with dry powder. I'll say that much. And what do you do like to give advice to your investors, to your clients? Like no one wants to hear from their agent that they don't know what's going to happen. They, they oh. want to hear Jordan, tell me what I should do. I want to know what I'm going to invest at and how I'm going to, you know, get the returns that I'm expecting. Where's the market going to be in three years when that place is finished? Like, how do you talk to them? Well, my answer is always the same when people ask, hey, I'm buying this pre-construction condo. What's it going to be worth in five years? And I just tell people flat out, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be on a yacht in in Thailand. I would not be selling condos, let's be honest. You'd just be um, buying them all. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's f- frankly fucking insane that there's so many agents out there that are saying, oh, you're buying this 1100 a foot. It's going to be worth 1500 a foot. And they just say it with certainty, like they somehow know what the, it's kind of ridiculous, right? Um, it's like at the end of the day, we all went through the same six week week boot camp at Rico. Uh, I, I don't know how that qualifies you to state where the market's going to be with that level of certainty. Unless you're uh, one of the people who had someone else who looks like them do the test for them. Not all of us went through those. those yeah. Like the Mike Ross of Rico. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think like if you look over a long period of time, like, and this is what I tell clients, like if you're looking to buy today and assign it in four years and you cannot afford to close if the market turns against you, then then you just shouldn't be buying, right? 
you shouldn't be in the market. If you cannot afford to close in four years and you have to assign and it has to be at a profit or you're in a worse financial position in four years than you are today, then you just should not even be looking at pre-construction as an investment. There's too much inherent risk. But if you're somebody who knows you're going to hold the property for 10, 15 plus years, then it makes a lot of sense because when you look at the immigration targets and when you look at the cost to build and replacement cost of housing, the one thing we can say for certain is pre-construction prices are not coming down. And so if that's your avenue of investing, if that's your chosen investment vehicle, then it's like, it's not going to get cheaper in the case of a market correction. The resale market could correct 10, 15% for six months before rebounding. The, the, you're, you're not going to be able to buy a pre-construction for cheaper all of a sudden. You'll just, it'll be like 20, uh, 2020, the developers just won't launch the product until they can achieve their margins. So if pre-con is your chosen investment vehicle, you have to be looking at a 10-year horizon. And if you can stomach a 10-year horizon at negative $200 cash flow a month, um, once you account for principal recapture and once you account for um, just you know uh, assuming even a 5% appreciation year over year over a longer period of time, then suddenly the asset class makes a lot more sense. But I'm, I'm scared for the you know, 10, 20% of investors who buy with the sole intention of assigning um, because I just think I, I, it, there's just too much risk in that for me. What, what about appraisal value? So like, how do you mitigate the conversation so that in three, four years, the appraised price doesn't come in at the price that they paid, which has happened in markets. I know, I know Florida, that was a huge issue, right? And uh, I don't know if it's ever happened in Toronto, maybe back in 1990 or something like that. So like, how do you prepare people? We had a guy from Bitcoin on here and he was basically saying like, don't throw all your Bitcoin into this mortgage because if you do and the market changes, you may have to use some more in order to be able to top up that, that loan to value where we need it. So if someone said to you, hey, I only have 20% down and I've borrowed from every friend and family member and I'm, I'm stretched, I, that, that's all I got. Do you somehow prepare them and say, well, what if this happens in three years when it comes time to close and you need to come up with an extra five, 10%, what are you going to like, you know, like how do you sort of, have that I do. I mean, one of the first things I disclose to people when I'm selling them a pre-construction product is I show what resale is selling for next door. And there's a very, uh, there's an obvious reason why a lot of people don't do that. And it's because the resale is cheaper. And so it's not just a function of, well, if the market uh, corrects, you could be in trouble. It's also a function of, well, if the market, does, if the market trades sideways for four years, you could also be in trouble. Right. If you're buying 1400 a foot, it's only worth a thousand. Like you could be in trouble if the market doesn't make up the difference in the, in the meantime. Um, it's obvious, like, I don't think, I don't know if in history that's ever happened in Toronto with pre-construction condos. Um, but I, I, like when people come to me and they, and they disclose and, and in Canada, people are relatively reserved. They're not always super forthcoming about their financial means or, or what their situation is with cash. Um, but if somebody tells me that, I mean, absolutely. I disclose uh, all the risks because I don't want to be in four years, the one receiving the call. Hey, Jordan, you know, I can't believe you sold me this. I'm, I, I owe the bank a hundred grand just to close on this thing. And I don't have it. I don't want to be yeah. in that position. Right. Um, so I always disclose all those risks. Um, I, do I think there are still a, a, some subset of the market that are getting in with that kind of risk profile where if the market doesn't go up, they can't close. Yeah. There's definitely, I, I'm sure there's a few of those people, um, yeah. but it's I don't think it's the broader of market. those people. Yeah, I, I just I don't think it's a big chunk of the market. Like most investors that come to me are pretty well off, and and relatively low risk. Um, Why do but, they choose pre condo then instead of like a building in Hamilton or Newmarket or wherever you can actually afford a building these days? Like you can still buy a cute little building on Eglinton near Dufferin, or it's probably more like Islington now for a million. 
two, a million four. Like you mean like buy? a resale building? That's like a no, like building? a re yeah with, with like a retail on the main floor, maybe a couple of apartments above it. You know, and there, there there's uh, like, why why are people do. picking pre con that you know maybe you're gonna get in five years? Because single family residential is so low maintenance, especially condos. Mm-hmm. I don't ever hear from my tenants. Like I don't have like I don't have to deal with shit ever. Um, sure. Every once in a while you get a nightmare tenant, but uh, like you get that anywhere, putting that aside, like, I don't have to worry about putting aside a rainy day fund to replace HVAC. I don't have to worry about any of that. Um, there's a property manager on site that literally deals with 90% of the problems. Uh, so I think a lot of people like, look, man, you're making a quarter million, half a million dollars a year in your job. You're some finance guy on Bay street. Like you don't have time to manage your properties. You don't have to, you're not a real estate investor. Um, you're just somebody who's diversifying. You've got some in the your stock portfolio. You've maybe you're in a couple private equity funds, and now you got a couple single family condos, right? Like, it's 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 a different type of. They might not offer the cash flow or even the returns, um, but it's low maintenance, and to a lot of people, that matters as well. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes a Which lot is of a sense. good argument for. I'd say it's a number one argument for the pre-construction buyers out there, right? And then yeah, there's other there's other reasons why people would choose that retail commercial building on Eglinton. And, for sure. Uh, why someone would want, you know, multifamily in, uh, you know, Barrie or something like that, right? Everyone's kind of got their own their own needs and, um, you know, pre-construction. I'm, I'm really surprised just how far it's gone. Like it was, such, it was such a, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like obscure type of investment 10 years ago, right? It was just like, it really wasn't this mainstream thing. Very few people did it. There wasn't as many condos. And now it's just mainstream. It's just like, everybody's, you know, you talk at the barbershop and someone's going to talk about how they bought a pre-construction condo and how they know all about it, right? I feel like it was like that 10 years ago too. I remember going to some pretty kick-ass launch parties 10 years ago. It was much, much, much smaller of a, uh, probably yeah of, of a topic you know i'm not sure what the percentages are or anything like that but it's definitely uh, i think it's also diversifying into it it's a little more digestible for the average person they know it they understand it they don't have to deal with it for five years right? yeah, it just seems Whereas, simpler than stocks it seems simpler than than buying resale property for a lot of people too like okay yeah. If I buy this, I got to close on it today. I have to get the mortgage today. I have to tenant it today. I have to go through the whole thing, right? Whereas with pre-construction, I have, I have time. I have time on my side. I've got five years. Hopefully it's worth more on closing. Um, either way though, it spaces out my deposit. It spaces out my closing costs. It gives me time to, you know, to digest everything. Um, Leverage. And, yeah, and I'm buying, a, I'm buying sort of a brand new asset. So I'm not buying a, a 10-year-old condo where I have to worry too quickly about maintenance fees or that kind of thing and, and watch uh, building financials more closely. Like, uh, you know, I know that this thing is going to be good for at least a 10-year hold, you know, five years pre-con and then five years post-closing. And it's like the sweet spot where with a few exceptions, nothing really goes wrong. How long would you expect a building? Like how long is too long, I should say, for something to get to cash flow neutral, right? So if someone says to you, like, I'm going to buy this, I know I'm going to lose 500 to $1,000 a month, but with, you know, rent uh, increasing and, you know, mortgage pay down, different stuff like that, I'm going to eventually be able to get this to the point where I'm neutral. And, you know, what, what does that look like? Because you're calculating all this stuff. Like, are you ever projecting it to come within five years for some of these people, 10 years? Yeah, ever? It, it varies on the project um, greatly. Um, I think the truth is, I think like more 60% are more focused on capital appreciation 
um, the, rather than rather than when am I going to be cash flow neutral with with increasing rental rates. Um, but it depends on the project anywhere from like three to seven years on average, I would say before it's positive depends on the project and the property type too. Yeah. And sometimes it's even hard to nail down comps. Like sometimes you're selling a condo in, in Hamilton that is very, um, unique for Hamilton. And you're looking at the rental rates and you're like, I don't know. I know it's going to command a premium over the other buildings. I just don't know what to associate that premium at. And so it can be difficult to give us uh, like proper estimates on, on sort of one-off buildings. Now, no, no rent control now, that must be a little bit easier to put together that, those numbers now, right? Where if you're going to put like a 3% appreciation, you can say it's over and above the prescribed amount that was pre-2018. And that kind of gives you a little bit of a better proposition, right? To, to For clients. sure. For sure. Right? This is awesome. I... Um, I'm, I'm, as I'm, as I talk to you more, and as I, you know, like listen to some of the stuff that you put out there, I become a little bit more open-minded to pre-construction, right? Like when you're a resale agent and you don't really get into pre-construction, you just kind of like, you're like, ah, oh, that's for those guys. That's a different type of stuff. I like to see it, feel it, walk in it, not just buy a piece of paper, know what I'm getting into and all that kind of stuff. But I genuinely see why people buy pre-construction. I don't, I don't think it's a bad decision. I think that it's just certain types of people it benefits tremendously and that's definitely for them. They're not making a mistake. It's like, that's the, that's the vehicle that they should be investing in. Yeah. And it's one of those things too, where it's like, you just have to do your due, dil due diligence. Like there's a lot of things you shouldn't invest in, in any market in any sort of asset class. Right. Like, um, I think a lot of the time, um, people see these, these pro formas come out uh, on these email lists and, and they're looking at 10% appreciation a year and 5% rental inflation and these guaranteed rental rates. And a lot of the times when things look too good to be true, they, 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 they are. Um, and so I think like one of the issues with the pre-construction market is there's, there's a lot of FOMO. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of marketing that goes behind some of these projects. And sometimes it's a little, um, I don't want to say unfair, but just a little, a little too much for me. Um, and that's why I try to put together like longer form videos and copy where it's like, here are the risks, here are some of the things you need to be aware of that other people aren't telling you about this building. And, and here are some fair assumptions on, on a pro forma. Are, are your plans to sell like a building? Like I know it's different. I hear in New York how that's, you know, certain brokerages are hired to sell the whole building, right? Like, and we've got a few brokerages here in Toronto that I'm aware of that will get the contract for the whole building and then they cooperate with the, with the platinum agents and stuff like that. Is that like a long-term goal for you? Maybe. I haven't really explored it. Um, I've, ha I've been approached by some smaller developers who have smaller sites to do that. Um, mm -hmm. We just don't have the infrastructure now to do it um, or, or really the bandwidth, especially over the past two years. It's been crazy busy. Um, mm -hmm. But maybe down the line, that's something we would get into. So I think it's the natural evolution, especially given like we're, we're about the third largest pre-construction website in, in Canada. Like we have some pull in terms of we could very easily sell out a building. Yeah. Canadian real estate show. Hear that girl? Boom. Third biggest, third oh, biggest website in Canada. Pre-construction condos. Check it out. Coast <laughs> no to kidding. Coast. See, we did involve people outside that, of Toronto that, today on the show. That's why we have this guy here, man. Second. This guy knows everything. Yeah. So, so hold on. So if I'm somebody who is actually planning on living in the condo that I'm looking at buying. Yeah. We, we, we see images all the time. We hear about the amenities, the amenities, the amenities. Mm -hmm. If I want to live in a particular area, 
do I even get to give a shit what the amenities are in the buildings? Because, like, do I have options? If I want to live in Toronto or Scarborough, like, how many launches are there at the same time in the same area? What, well, what are my options? The beautiful thing about end users, and we've done a ton of end user pre-construction in the last year, like more, way more than normal, um, is they're often looking at bigger units at higher price points. And so there's more lingering inventory to choose from. They don't have to usually play the worksheet game. If they're above a million dollars, they're not, they're not, we're not often playing the worksheet allocation game, like begging to get a unit. We just, we're looking at what's available on the market. You know, those, those projects sell slower when you're geared towards end users. Um, and a lot of the time, I'll, I'll, a lot of the time downsizers will come to me and they'll ask about what they should buy. And I'll tell them like, look, uh, have you ever lived in a condo before? A lot of them will tell me no. And I'll say, okay, well, we want to focus on a couple of things. Ideal situation is not a high rise for you. Like ideal situation is probably a low rise sort of mid rise boutique building. It's going to be quieter. It's going to have more end users, less tenants. It's just going to be a more livable, enjoyable building. And they're going to offer larger floor plans, better finishes, that kind of thing. Um, and so there usually is way more options for end users on the market, on the pre-construction market, um, than there would be for investors. Cause investors by and large, 80% of them are, are like, Hey, I want to spend less than 800 K and I want to be as close to transit as possible. But end users are less focused on that type of thing. Um, and so they have more options. And so what amenities are hot right now? And like, what are people doing that are just so, you know, 2015? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Like, what, 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 like, do people want a dog washing station? Uh, or are we still doing uh, like a, a squash court? Like who the hell uses the squash court? Or are we doing... You know, what are we doing these days that's actually cool and usable? I've walked into, for example, uh, my father-in-law just bought in uh, Young and York Mills. You know, the old Tridel building on the yep. west side there? And so beautiful buildings, well-maintained, super expensive. But the amenity, like the size and scale of the amenities in this building is ridiculous. And what they are is like... There's literally like almost half the main, like the second floor is, I don't even know what it is. It looks like a bar mitzvah hall. There's like a, there's a, a, a piano that you're not allowed to touch. There's a bar, there's sofas in this expansive space that looks yeah. into the biggest indoor outdoor pool I've ever seen with like rock climbing and how many squash courts and basketball courts and how many people are in there. Just us looking around. Cause you know, we're just moving into the building. Nobody's in these things. So, you know, what, what is actually attractive to a, a end user these days? And is anybody building? them? I think co-working lounges will get super uh, popular. And I, I don't mean because work from home. I just mean like as, as somebody who often works from home, uh, like obviously I have my office, but I, I'm in real estate. So I'm, I really work 24 hours. I pick up the phone, whatever. Um, it's nice to have a place to step out to. Like I have a rather large condo with an office, so it's different for me. But I, if I lived in a one bedroom and I didn't have like a dedicated office set up, it'd be nice to have a co-working lounge to step down to either to study, to do my Rico update courses, you know, um, or, uh, or to, uh, to take calls, that kind of thing. And some of the co-working lounges are getting pretty good. Like it's not just like this, you know, dingy uh, business center. Some of them have indoor outdoor elements. Some of them have breakout rooms where you can have qu quiet private meetings or zoom calls or whatever. I think those get a lot of use. And I, I think, or I think they will get a lot of use. And I think uh, they're very low maintenance, right? So like pools, obviously just, just our maintenance fee killers. 
And in my experience, they're super underutilized. You have some buildings where the pools are always used, but that's usually because they're larger and actually usable. Like um, 111 St. Clair, they have that whole underground health club and it feels like you're in an LA fitness, like it's gorgeous, it's huge. Um, but I think a lot of the time, like just shoving a pool into a building so that you could say you have a pool amenity is just detrimental to maintenance fees. It's never going to get used. Um, yeah. I mean, you're, get, you're getting a lot of kids playrooms. I have no idea if those will be used. Um, I imagine they will be as we see more and more kids raised in condos um, again, low, relatively low maintenance. And we're seeing like pet relief uh, stations. Pet uh, relief. Lately. Yes. I saw yeah, you yeah. call it that. And, and the, uh, the ultimate was the glass blowing station. Wasn't there? Some... That's, that's for or was sure. That just, just in a... the rendering. <laughs> yeah. That, there's no way. Uh, I, I can't imagine the special assessment <laughs> that's inevitable when, when there's some lawsuit related to a glass blowing facility in your lobby. Uh, yeah. So I guarantee that one doesn't, that's just the marketing guy taking some, uh, initiative. Yes. But yeah, so, but it, no. So, but is there anything that nobody's, nobody cares about the amenities, do they? Do people come to you and say, Hey, like sometimes what, yeah, what are I the mean, amenities and, in this building? End users uh, always like the idea of a party room with outdoor room. element, yeah. um, outdoor element, especially if they don't have a terrace in their unit um, to have family over type of thing. Um, and I mean, some amenities are used like crazy. Like when you go to like uh, Humber Bay, for example, and you look at like South Beach or you look at uh, 10 Park Lawn, the Westlake Encore building, rooftop pools overlooking the lake in the summer are going to be very popular right? It's also going to attract certain types of tenants, but, um, you know, that's a super popular amenity. It's also a very cost heavy amenity. Yeah. Most of them are, and they force the developers to put all this amenity space and lose sales space, like saleable space for stuff that most people, you know, might use a couple of times. Cause like we, I mean, we bought in the building, we should at least use it once. I mean, it's like Tom's story said in a video we recently did together, like focus on where you're going to spend 99% of your time, which is in your unit. Like you, you might have this, like, um, like I had this romantic picture when I, when I moved to Humber Bay, I was like, I'm going to spend all my time outdoor on my, on my little terrace here. I'm going to, you know, drink my espresso every morning overlooking the, the sunrise. Um, and I've done it like seven times in two years. So it's like, you know, don't get too caught up with the idea of the indoor pool that you think you're going to visit because you, you're just not going to, um, focus more on the unit, uh, and the, and the building demographic can, can change things too. Like, is it a mid rise? Is it a low rise? Is it going to have more end users? That's more favorable always. Um, yeah, does it have a good view, a good layout? Like I, I, most buyers in my experience are not wowed and 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 sold by the amenities most of them realize it's just this little value add thing waste of money well well it's it seems like we have come to the end of the first canadian real estate show of all time Amazing. it was the best one i think we've ever had the canadian real estate show by far <laughs> number one number most views, most one likes, most comments by far well thank you mr speaking Strinko. of likes comments and subscribers if you're still watching the video and you haven't liked, commented, or subscribed yet, just ask yourself, why not? And Jordan, please give them your information so they can find you as well, too. If you're anybody looking for pre-construction advice. 
Yeah. Uh, follow me on YouTube. I'm uh, I, I'm making the transition out of real estate. I, I'm a YouTuber who sells real estate when he's called upon. I'm not a realtor who makes YouTube videos. Just going to make that discrepancy clear. Very clear. Thank That's you. That's why I wear a hoodie. I don't wear suits anymore. So if you want to come meet with me to talk pre-construction, I'm happy to walk you through some options, but just be aware this is how I am dressed. Um, <laughs> I, I, like I said, I'm a YouTuber. So Great. Love it. I, I'm not wearing pants. <laughs> So everybody's clear about that. I haven't worn pants in two years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I haven't heard you wear pants for a long time. Oh, and you well, can thanks for having me, when guys, I... on the best real estate show in Canada. Thank you, it. sir. Great time. As always, we'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Yes, sir. on curiosity street uncover engineering secrets from history's greatest masters from the mysteries of the first man-made waterways to the building techniques of the early americas it's ancient engineering plus 40 tons of trucks speeding down the interstate can be a recipe for disaster see how today's smarter new age big rigs pave the way for safer highways on high-tech trucks watch now on curiosity stream annual plans are twenty dollars just a dollar 67 a month visit curiositystream.com